Hello, and welcome to the Get Transformed podcast of Transformation Christian Fellowship. We are so excited that you're tuning in, and we hope that you will be empowered and transformed by the Word of God. All right, y'all ready for the Word tonight? Amen, amen. Um, Come with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 9. And I'll be reading verses 1 through 9. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Should be up on your screen if you don't happen to have a Bible with you. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. And it reads, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, excuse me, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Verse 4, then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Verse 8, then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. I want to lift up verse 8 for our emphasis tonight. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Tonight, I want to talk from the subject of leading the blind. Leading the blind. So, the reason why all of us are here tonight wearing masks is because this year we have stepped into a global pandemic. The origin of this global pandemic has been a very deadly virus called the coronavirus, or we abbreviate it COVID-19. And the reason why COVID-19 was so difficult to distinguish in its early stages was because many of its symptoms are synonymous with your common cold and fever. (laughs) Runny nose, coughing, congestion, fever, and chills. So when we're hearing about COVID-19, we're like, okay, okay, how are we going to guard ourselves against it? How can we know that it's coming? Okay, here are the symptoms. Here go the doctors. Runny nose, <laughs> congestion, fever, chills. And we're like, okay, that don't really help because <laughs> these are the same symptoms that you would experience if you had a cold or fever. But there are two distinct symptoms that I discovered that blew my mind that people who have contracted COVID-19 experience, not all, but some have experienced, and that is the loss of the sense of smell and taste. I have a friend, by the grace of God, she has recovered from COVID-19, and she experienced both the loss of her sense of smell and taste. 
And I don't think we really understand how much we truly rely on our senses. When we talk about the sense of smell, your sense of smell is very important. How your brain works, internal nervous system works, it's sending signals to your brain when you smell a certain odor. So when you smell fire, your nose is sending signals to your brain like, whoa, there's smoke, time to get out. If somebody got B.O., your nose is sending signals to your brain like, mm, somebody in here stink. <laughs> and they need to go take a shower, amen? So your sense of smell is very important. And we would be remiss if we didn't talk about your sense of taste. Amen. The joy of eating, amen? And everybody in here is black, so I know y'all love to eat. The, the, the enjoyment you get out of eating is the ability to taste all of its different components. Yes. <laughs> don't hate, don't hate, don't hate. I love key lime pie. But before the key lime pie, how could you enjoy fried chicken? If you could not experience the taste bud of saltiness. How could you enjoy your desserts without the taste bud of sweetness? I don't think we really realize how much we rely on our God-given senses. How do you function and how do you navigate when you are incapacitated, when the senses that God has given you are not functional? What do you do? How do you navigate? How do you function? In our account today, we're going to look at how a very, very prominent figure in the Bible how he functions and how he operates when he temporarily loses, temporarily loses, excuse me, one of his most important senses. Come to me, with me. So this, we're, tonight we're in the book of Acts, and our author is Luke the physician. He is the author of the Gospel of Luke, and he traveled with the Apostle Paul post-conversion. He is writing, now he wrote the book of Luke and Acts, and he's writing to a man named Theophilus. Now, we don't know exactly who Theophilus is, but Luke addresses him as most excellent or most honorable. So we presume that he is a man of great stature, great honor. And so he tells, um, in his sequel to Luke in the book of Acts, he tells Theophilus, he says, In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Now, this is important because I think a lot of us, when we go to the end of the book of Luke and then we go in the first few verses of the book of Acts, and we see Jesus ascending and leaving the disciples, we assume that Jesus' work stopped when he ascended. And that's not true. When he was with the disciples, he says, it is to your advantage that I go, because if I do not go, I cannot send you the helper. But if I do go, I will send you the helper and he will lead you and guide you into all truth. The work that the Holy Spirit does in us, the foundation of that work is Jesus' finished work on the cross. So Jesus' work did not end when he ascended. It continued on through the Holy Spirit. It continued on through the early church. It continued on. We see Jesus' very presence here in this account in Acts chapter 9. And his work continues through us. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful that his work did not end when he ascended because I have not reached the point of perfection yet. He said in Philippians that I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you shall complete it until the day of redemption. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Brandon Hill, the senior pastor of Transformation Christian Fellowship, and I am so glad that you are tuned in right now. Listen, it is through your generosity where we are able to do what we do here at TCF. Listen, if you feel led to give at any part of the service, please text TCF1 to 77977 
or you can give on our website. Listen, as you give, you allow us to continue our outreach efforts as well as to maintain the ministry that we do here at TCF in the Maryland area to connect more lives to the transforming power and love of Jesus Christ. I pray that God will bless you as you give today. And remember, transformation starts here. He was in, he, even Jesus is seated at the right hand of the father as he's sitting in glory. He is still interceding on our behalf. So as you encounter temptation, as you encounter trial, Jesus is literally sitting in glorified state, sitting at the right hand of the father, interceding for you. He is still working. Tell your neighbor, he is still working, still working. And so here we are in Acts chapter nine, our main protagonist, he goes by the name of Saul. Pastor is keeping track of my vocabulary tonight. <laughs> now, for those of you who may be a little confused, yes, this Saul we're talking about is the Apostle Paul. Quick history about Saul. Saul is Jewish. He was born to Jewish parents, but he was not born in Jerusalem. He was born in a Roman province called Cilicia. And so by virtue of being, by virtue of being born in a Roman province but being born to Jewish parents, he has two names. Saul is his Jewish name. Paul is his Roman name. And so unlike other accounts in the Bible where we see dramatic name changes, there was no dramatic name change with Paul, excuse me, with Saul. In Acts chapter 13, as he goes into Gentile territory and begins to evangelize to the people, he switches from Saul to Paul to identify with the Gentiles whom he was evangelizing to. And so this is who we're talking about tonight. Saul was educated by one of the leading scholars of the law called Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the top-notch dude. If you wanted to know about Old Testament law, this was the dude that you wanted to be educated under. He knew the law back and forth. And if that wasn't enough, Saul was also a Pharisee. This was a religious party that strictly enforced adherence to the Old Testament law. This is all going to come into play. Before Acts chapter 9, we see three mentions of Saul. We see it in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. There was a man by the name of Stephen full of grace, full of the Holy Spirit, going around performing miracles. And as a true evangelist, he got into some arguments with the people who believed that he was blaspheming. So all throughout chapter 7, he spends his time educating. Somebody say educating. Educating the people about the history of God's connection with Israel, starting with Abraham all the way to Solomon. And in true, um, in true, uh, What's the word? Rebellious or not rebellious, but in true, I don't care what you say about me form. Stephen tells him, he says, you people are stiff necked. You are just like your ancestors. You had the prophets. You had them sharing all the, the, the news of the arrival of the righteous one. And you killed him. And you're just as stubborn as them. You have the law and the law was even given to you by angels. And yet you do not obey it. So these people say, oh. <laughs> They felt some type of way about that because the law was the Jewish pride and joy. That's what they took pride in was the law. So the fact that they had it but did not obey and someone called them out on it, they said, oh, no, we're not going to let this dude, we're not going to let this dude get away. So they ran him out the city and stoned him. And the Bible says they laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Acts 8 chapter 1 says Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. Why was this important? Because, again, Saul was a man of great stature, great influence. He was a Pharisee. So the Bible, Luke specifically points out that when they were stoning Stephen to death, Saul stood, stood around and said, yep, keep stoning him. Yeah. And then Acts chapter 8, verse 3. 
But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Now, a lot of us hearing this account before, we would assume that Paul was just out, excuse me, Saul was out here just killing Christians and arresting Christians for the sake of because he was evil. You have to understand that in Saul's mind, he was doing the right thing. And this is why they believe Jesus to be a blasphemous figure. Why is that? When Jesus came into the earth, he professed himself to be equal to God, the God of the law they had studied. And they knew that Jesus was this little carpenter boy, Joseph and Mary's baby. And he's coming around saying that he's equal to God. To them, that was blasphemous. He also performed miracles on the Sabbath. Now, there was no law that said that you couldn't perform miracles or do um, extraneous work on the Sabbath in that extent. That was an extra biblical tradition that they conjured up. And so when Jesus was performing miracles on the Sabbath, they was just like, look at him breaking the Sabbath. Surely this can't be the God of the law. Jesus also proclaimed to be greater than Abraham and Moses. Abraham and Moses are the Jewish patriarchs of patriarchs. So for them, for him to say that he existed before them, again, another offense. And here was the greatest offense when Jesus was crucified. Deuteronomy 21, 23 tells us that a curse is a man who hangeth on a tree. So if this man is professing to be God and he got up on a cross and allowed people to crucify him and he hung there willingly, then what you're telling me is that God is cursed. And so this is the reason why they thought Jesus was blasphemous. There's no way that the God of the law could be cursed. There's no way that the God of the law could hang on a cross. Crucifixion was not only merciless, it was the most humiliating form of execution. So for the God of the Jewish Old Testament law to hang in humiliation and shame, surely this cannot be the Messiah. And surely anybody who follows him deserves to be punished, deserves to be executed, deserves to be thrown in prison. And I think what Paul shows us is that just because you have passion and zeal doesn't mean you have understanding. Just because you have passion and zeal for a cause does not mean you have true knowledge. Come to me to Romans 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. What Saul and the other Jews had was knowledge of the law. They did not have knowledge of God. There's a difference. We should not read the scriptures just to know about God's precepts. We should read to understand God's character, his essence, who he is. And so while they had all the laws memorized, they did not know God. They did not know him in an intimate way. And they rejected God in the form of Jesus Christ. So they knew the law. And their zeal for God was zeal based off the law, not zeal in accordance with a true knowledge, a true understanding of the God that they were serving. And so Saul and his fellow Jews, they were operating based on an incomplete, unenlightened knowledge of God. Their eyes had not been opened to see that Jesus was God. How in the Isaiah 53, how it talks about the suffering servant. 
They had the Old Testament, but their eyes had not been opened to see that this man that Isaiah prophesied how he would bore our griefs and sorrows. This was the man. This was Messiah. And he was God in the flesh. I know I got some saints in here. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So they had all the knowledge. Don't y'all know there's some atheists out here that know the word? Don't you know there's some agnostics and atheists out here that know the scriptures? So just because you have knowledge, just because you have understanding of his precepts does not mean that you understand who he is. And so operating off of unenlightened knowledge, this is what fuels Saul and all his countrymen's pursuit to kill Christians. Because they did not have understanding. So come to me to the first verse, first three verses. Verse 3 says, as Saul journeyed, after he got permission from the high priests for letters to take to the synagogue to arrest the Christians. Verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Now, this was no ordinary light. <laughs> Not at all. This was the light of the resurrected, the ascended, the glorified son of God. The Apostle Paul later states in his account of his own experience in Acts chapter 22 that this light was brighter than the sun. How is that possible? The sun is a created entity. Jesus is an uncreated creator. In Colossians 1.15 it says Jesus is the image of the invisible God for by him all things in heaven and in earth were created. They were created for him and through him. So you have the sun. Have you ever tried to look at the sun with your naked eye? It's almost impossible. But here is the light emitting from the uncreated creator. And so he sees the light. He's walking. He's walking. All of a sudden, bam, light hits him. And he falls to the ground. And so while he's on the ground talking to him, Jesus calls out to Saul. He says, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Yeah. Now, if you remember and go through the scriptures I just read, there was no, spe no specific verse that said Paul, so, excuse me, Saul persecuted Jesus. There was no verse that specifically said that. What it did say was that Saul persecuted the church. But the church is the body of Christ. Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself his savior. So when Saul was going around arresting, killing, ordering the execution of Christians, he was persecuting Jesus the Lord, the glorified son of God himself. When they're, over in our, uh, when they're over in the countries overseas persecuting our brothers and sisters of Christ, they're not just persecuting members of the church, they're persecuting Jesus himself. When Jesus says, when they hate you, don't be mad, don't get in a tumble, don't get mad at them, they truly hate me. Because he identifies with us. We are his body. There is no separation. So Saul, Jesus tells Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's right. And he says, who are you, Lord? <laughs> who are you, Lord? Even not, even not even displaying full knowledge, he still addresses him as Lord. And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard you to kick against the golds. Now, a gold is like a pointed staff. It's what people back in the day would use to guide animals along to get them straight. 
And so what Jesus is saying, it's hard for you as an oxen, that was the common animal, as an oxen, it's hard for you to kick against that thing because it's constantly trying to steer you. It's constantly poking at you. The gold in the Hebrew, it actually means figuratively, it means divine impulse. So while Saul was going around persecuting Christians, saying that you're blaspheming, there was something on the inside of him. I know y'all been there. When you was out doing your own thing, out in darkness, you felt something on the inside just tick, kicking, 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 kicking. And you couldn't identify what it was, but you sure enough felt it. And that's what Saul, this is what Saul says. He says, so he trembling and astonished. I'm going to make a presumption here. He was astonished, possibly, presumably, because he realized, oh, my God, this impulse that I'm feeling Maybe it's been this dude. Maybe it's been Jesus who's been calling my name. Maybe it's been Jesus who's been plucking on the inside of me, telling me, Saul, what are you doing? Maybe this is the person that's been kicking at me. Just maybe this is the dude who's been kicking at my inside. And so out of result, he says, out of, excuse me, out of submission, he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm going to take a break here. Die. And I'm going to keep reiterating this. It's going, good. it's going to get good in the message. But we have to die to what we want to do. I know y'all don't like that. I know that's not popular. But Saul said, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I pose the question, Lord, I submit myself unto you. What do you want me to do in this season? What do you want me to do right now? What is it your will? What do you want me to do? And so here we go. Saul surrenders. And so Jesus says, go into the city and it will be told you what you must do. Now, let's go to verses seven and eight. This is where I really want to get. This is where I really want to get into it. All right. Verse seven. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. Now, when the light flashed and hit him, bam, knocked him to the ground. And all the time that he's talking, thank you, all the time that he's talking, Jesus is talking to him, his eyes are closed. Jesus departs, he gets up, Saul gets up, and when he opens up his eyes, he cannot see. Let's talk about spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness, um, show the scripture from 2 Corinthians. Spiritual blindness is the condition in which an individual is unable to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. Spiritual blindness is the condition in which an individual is unable to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the exact image of God. People who are spiritually blind are unable to see God in the truth, in the essence of who he is. They are unable to see Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one. They are unable to see Jesus as God. And as a result of their inability to see God for who he is in the essence of who he is, they do not believe. Let's go to the scripture. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. But even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are what? Perishing. 
whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Unbelievers are spiritually blind. They are unable to see God in his true essence. And what this shows us, I may be getting a little bit ahead of myself, but what this shows us is that faith is a gift. There was nothing in and of myself that had the ability to see God in his true essence. He had to give me the ability. He had to shine his light in and through me so I could see him for who he is. As human beings, our parents, Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden, by default, by default, we were born into sin and shaped into iniquity. And not only that, we were automatically born into the kingdom of darkness. We didn't have no choice. <laughs> it was over for us. As soon as you came out the womb, and crying, 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 you was born. I know, right? A cute little baby. You was born into the kingdom of darkness. Blame Adam and Eve, all right? <laughs> Blame them. It's all their fault. So as a baby, you were born into the kingdom of darkness. And by default, you had no ability in and of yourself to see God and who he is. However, Colossians tells us that for those of us who have been redeemed, he transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So by accepting him as Lord and Savior, he transferred me from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And now, now I have the ability to see God in his essence. Now I have the ability to see God in his true essence. Now I have the ability to see God for all that he is. It's because he transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his beloved son. And so unbelievers, like I said, they're spiritually blind. They suffer from hardened hearts that make it difficult to receive the gospel, this gospel that says that you are wretched, this gospel that says that there's nothing that you can do to earn your salvation, this gospel that preaches liberation because Jesus got up on that cross and paid the penalty for your sins for you to live an abundant, free life. This is that gospel. That gospel that gives you hope when you're facing temptation. That gospel that gives you hope when you look in your mirror and you see all that is wrong with you. What, ha what hope do I have? Paul says, what a wretched man that I am. I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I do want to do. But what hope do I have? Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that gives me hope. 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 My God in here, hope. Where will we be without Jesus? What hope will we have? Even in this body as we overcome temptation, temptation by day, there's a hope yet laid us for heaven so that I know when I get there, I don't have to struggle in this body no more. I don't have to have these aches and these pains. There's going to be a day when I don't have to face any of this anymore. There is hope. That's what the gospel gives. Out of all the things that it gives, it gives us hope. I don't know what you guys have been struggling with this year, but the gospel gives you hope that it's not always going to be like this, that there is hope for beyond. But there is, there's even hope right now that when Jesus came, he got up on that cross and was beaten and tortured all night long to give you hope to walk in victory, to walk as an overcomer. We are more than conquerors through whom? Christ Jesus, who loved us. Now, I know we like to 
blame things on the devil. But this is a case where you can blame the devil. You want to know why? Because <laughs> it says in the verse, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Now notice, notice how it says little g, all right? The devil in the Bible in Ephesians, he's known as the prince of the power of the air. So does he have power? Yes, but it's limited. Does he have somewhat of authority? Yes, but it's limited. <laughs> he only does what God gives him permission to do. <laughs> so even though he goes around and sends his demons to do his bidding, he is only allowed. What type of loser is that? How are you going to reject God? How are you going to lose your place? You can't even do what you want to do. You have to do it with the permission of a holy, exalted God. You should have just stayed in heaven and humbled yourself. But look at you now. You can do all that you want to do, but you can't even do all that you want to do because you even have limits. Mm, mm, my God. My God. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. I, mm, devil, I don't know. I don't know. It sounds like a bad choice to me. I mean, if you was going to do that, you should have did that knowing that you're going to have authority and power over everything. But you have limited power and authority. It's limited. But this is the person who blinds the eyes. Now, what this shows us is that the devil knows the power of the gospel. The devil knows the power, the liberation you can experience of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If he did not believe that the gospel had power, why would he go through so much trouble to blind people's eyes from seeing the light of the gospel? It's because he knows that the gospel has power to liberate. And he does not want you liberated. <laughs> He wants you to think that you are liberated, but in actuality, you are in bondage. But I won't, only, the only reason why I would blind your eyes is because I know that there's power. Even though I rejected him, I still know that there's power to liberate these people, and I don't want them to be liberated, and I don't want them to know that they can be liberated. So I'm going to blind your eyes so you cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so coming back to Saul, Saul's physical blindness is a manifestation of his spiritual blindness. As he's going and ravaging the church, he thinks that he can see clearly. Actually, he's been spiritually blinded the entire time. Why would you arrest and kill Christians? If your sight was truly open, the devil had blinded his mind, had kept him from seeing the light so that the devil could do his work. Killing Christians? Come on now. <laughs> Who else does that sound like? The Bible says he's accuser of the brethren. And so he has blinded Saul's eyes. And so now that he's blind, he's experiencing his spiritual state. He thought he could see. But now that he's blind, his blindness is a reflection of how he was walking around, killing Christians, arresting them. This is what this was Saul was. He thought he could see, but he was actually blind, spiritually blinded the whole time. This physical blindness was a manifestation of what he was experiencing spiritually. And so I want to give you a little bit of research. Not everybody who was blind experiences the same thing. There's a difference between people who are born blind and people who lose their vision later in life. People who are born blind, they've never had the ability to see. 
And so you might think that a person who was born blind from birth sees darkness. What they actually see is nothing. Close one of your eyes for me, if you can. Close one of your eyes and focus on something. That eye that is closed, what do you see out that eye? Nothing. People who are born blind, that's what they see. Nothing. They see absolutely nothing. The signals that are supposed to be sending up to their brain, because it's actually your brain that processes that information, but they don't receive signals from their eyes. They've never had that ability. So what we would, what we would describe as darkness, they see absolutely nothing. And so what makes that difficult is that it makes it more difficult for them to tell if they're in darkness. I'm going somewhere. I'm going somewhere. People who have lost their sight later in life, some would describe it as darkness. Some would describe it as cloudiness, fogginess. But the thing is, is that they once had the ability to see. And so they're able to compare two experiences. They're able to see certain flashes of light. They're, certain, they're able to see a range of different things because they once had the ability to see. But someone who has been born blind from birth cannot see, period. So if they cannot see and have never had the ability to see, they don't see shadows, people who are born blind, they don't see shadows, they don't see colors. So if you were to put them in a completely dark room, there are some people, now there's some research of people who were born blind and have little light perception, but I want to talk about somebody who was born completely blind from birth. If you were to put them in a completely dark room, it would be extremely difficult, almost close, close to impossible, but not, I'm not saying that, but close, almost extremely difficult to tell that they're in darkness. And this is what the enemy does. Having been born spiritually blind from birth, there's no way that I can tell that I'm in darkness because I never had the ability to see. When I was born, I did not have the ability to see. So if I'm walking in darkness, I have no reason, I have no understanding to know that I'm in darkness. And so if I'm completely in darkness without the ability to perceive that I'm in darkness, I'm in the devil's playground. Because I don't know that I'm walking in darkness. I don't know that I'm carrying out the works of the flesh. I don't know because I can't see and I've never had the ability to see. This is the trick. It's not just that you're walking. He just doesn't want you to walk in darkness. But the trick is, is that being spiritually born, being born spiritually blind from birth, you can't even tell. When you was out there doing your thing, could you tell that you was in darkness? When you was out there doing your sin and your shame and all that other stuff, could you perceive that you were in spiritual darkness? No. But how is it that some of, how is it, how is it that some of us as believers... How did we come to know that we were in darkness? Because there was a light. The light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ doesn't just come to give us truth, doesn't just come to give us the truth and essence of who God is and all his radiance and his glory, but it illuminates our eyes so we can see what we was really doing when we was in darkness. <laughs> it illuminates our eyes to let us know, wow, that's what I was doing when I didn't know no better. I didn't even know that I was in darkness. I didn't know I, when I was out here drinking and getting drunk and all this other stuff. I didn't know. But the light shone on me to see that I was in darkness. Yeah. 
And I allowed that light to penetrate my heart and heart. I allowed that light to penetrate my heart. And now I've come over to the kingdom of light. And now I can distinguish between the works of light and the works of darkness. This is what the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ does. It comes to show us, it comes to help us distinguish between the light and the darkness. And to show us, Ephesians says that you were formerly darkness. We didn't even know. We didn't even have consciousness. We didn't have spiritual discernment to know that when we were in darkness, we didn't have spiritual discernment to know that we were in darkness. And that's why the devil don't want the light to shine because as we were in darkness, we were doing everything that he wanted us to do, being rebellious. But thank God for the light. When the light shone, when the light penetrated our hearts, the devil said, dang, another one, dang, another one, dang, another one, because the light shone and it penetrated this hardened heart. To see that what I was doing was rebellious. It's the power of the light. Power of the light. And so, as we come back into the account, this is what really blessed me. Verse 8. So after he gets up, and he can't see. He has no ability to see. Jesus told him to get up and go into the city. How was he going to do that if he couldn't see? Verse 8. But they led him by the hand. Saul could not see. And because he could not see, he was prone to wander. So this is the path to Damascus. He's prone to wander. Because he can't see. So with one sense incapacitated. What do the people around him do? They take him by the hand. Prince Notizi, come here real quick. All right, Otisi, I want you guys to go right here um, on the floor, and I'm going to show you what to do. So take him by the hand. All right. All right, stop right there. Turn this way. All right. So unhook for a minute. Now, Princeton, try to walk in a straight line. Saul can't see. He has no immediate sense of his surroundings. And he got to get to Damascus because in Damascus, Ananias is going to meet him there to lay his hands on him to regain his sight. So what happens? Stay there, Princeton. Otizia. You take him by the hand. No, grab his hand. So he cannot see, but his sense of touch is still there. He cannot see, but as long as he's holding on, see, there's got to be a trust there. Because he don't trust Otisia, he's just like, well, I guess, I'm, I guess I'm screwed then. But there's a trust there. So he grabs her hand. She takes him by the hand and now walk. Wherever she goes, he goes with her. Wherever she goes, step by step. Turn around, bam, you're in Damascus. 
How is Princeton going to get there with no vision? He had someone next to him. He, had, he still had his sense of touch. And so when he could not see, he could sense a touch leading him and guiding him. Now, I don't know about you, but this year there was a lot that we did not see coming. There was a lot that was over the horizon that we did not see, that we couldn't perceive. And so with our vision limited, even the people who suggested, even though people predicted things like this was going to happen this year, a lot of us, for the most of us, could not see all that was coming this year, all the way from January to December. But God, in his mercy, in his grace, he came alongside for all of us. You're a living testament of it, that he took your hand and touched you and walked you through January, walked you through February, walked you through March, walked you through April, walked you through May, walked you through June, walked you through July, walked you through August, walked you through September, walked you through October, walked you through November, walked you through December. He guided you by the hand. When you could not see all that was going on, you had his touch. And for three, almost, I know it's not 365 days, but almost 300, for almost 340 days, every day you woke up. Mm. God, 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 I can't see all that is happening. God, I can't, I can't see all that's coming up ahead. I can't, I can't see, I can't see, but God's your hand. Oh, oh my God, it's your hand that's guiding me. It's your right hand that's holding me up. The Bible says that if I were to dwell in the innermost of the seas, if I were to dwell in the skies, your hand is there to guide me and your right hand will hold me. Your right hand will hold me up. Your right hand will keep me in the midnight hour. Your right hand is there to uphold me. Your hand, your hand. My God in this place, your hand. When I couldn't see all that was going on, your hand was there. Your hand was there to hold me. Your hand was there to keep me up. Your hand, my God. Your hand, you guys can stop, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> Your hand. Your hand. Your hand was there. This was the verse, Psalm 139, 9 through 10. Thank you. Give it up for Princeton Noticia. Psalm 139 through 9 through 10. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Help me. Now, some of you are thinking, the light that shone. There were accounts in Acts that said that Saul, that Saul said that the men actually saw the light, that the light actually shone on them. Why were they not affected? I would presume and I would surmise that Jesus blinded the men from feeling the effects of that light. And that light was specifically for Saul. That blinding light was specifically to show that man, oh, you think you can see? I'm going to really show you how much you need to depend on me. And so while the men, the Bible says that they saw the light, and even though it doesn't say it specifically, I want to believe that Jesus, even though they saw the light, he still blinded them from feeling the effects of it. Because if they was blind, how are they going to get to Damascus? But Jesus divinely blinded, Jesus divinely shielded them from the effects of that light. Similar to how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they was in that fire. They threw them in that fire, but the fire did not burn them. How did they not burn to a crisp? Because when they looked in there, they saw a fourth man in there. Jesus was in there protecting them. So while they're in the midst of a furnace fire, they're still lolly galleon, jumping around, all that other stuff. You know why? Because Jesus was in the middle of the fire. My God. 
in the middle of a furnace fire and they came out with no scratch. This is the divine protection, divine protection of Jesus the King, Jesus the King. And so I want to give you tonight, I want to give you some pointers, some tips, some things that you need to lead the spiritually blind. Because, like I said, they can't see God for all that he is. Some unbelievers you meet, some are kind. Some are a little bit more open than you would think. There are some that reject it completely. And you're saying, Dominique, how can I lead somebody that doesn't want to be led? What if they don't want to know about Jesus? What if they, want to, what if they don't want to know? And yes, it's hard to lead somebody who doesn't want to be led. Almost impossible. But as a believer, you need to take a good look in that mirror. And you need to ask yourself, am I deterrent from them wanting to know about Jesus? Am I causing them to not want to see the light with the way that I'm living around them? If I'm professing that I am enlightened and that I see the light and I'm telling them that they're spiritually blind, yet they see me acting in a way that's contradictory to this gospel, contradictory to these principles that I preach, how? Why would they want to know? Why would they even care if they see me living in a way that's contradictory to a way that says that I can see? You may not be able to lead everybody, but you need to ask yourself, wow, am I walking, talking contradiction? Am I professing Jesus Christ in one way, living another way? Why would an atheist want to follow me if I'm out here doing my own thing, if I'm out here working and operating in the works of the flesh? Why would an atheist want to come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ if the person closest to them is acting a fool? Why? Why would they want to know? And so to lead, this is what you need. The first thing you need is sight. That's what you need. Come to verse, um, come to me to Matthew 15. This is what Jesus says. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? This is what Jesus said. Every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. I got to make sure that I can see if I'm going to take on the responsibility of leading someone who is spiritually blind. I got to make sure that my eyes have been opened to the truth of the gospel of the glory of the light of Jesus Christ. I got to make sure that I can see. Because if we both blind, we're going to fall into a ditch. We're going to fall into destruction. I got to make sure that I can see. And then I got to make sure that I'm keeping my eyes consistently on the one. Come on, Hebrews 11.1. 1. I know y'all know it. Let us run this race uh, that is set before us with endurance. Keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ. Excuse me, Hebrews 12. Thank you, Bible scholars. Thank you, Hebrews 12. There was so much in this year. And I'm not even going to go down too much in this path, but there was so much this year to take our eyes off of Jesus. And because we took our eyes, we started dabbling in other things. New age, humanism, Buddhism, energy, crystals, vibes. And this is coming from believers. So you get into a little trouble. 
you get into it, and I'm not demeaning, and I'm not, I'm not devaluing the, the tragedy of this year. I'm not doing that. What I am saying is, is that it's not like this word doesn't teach us that, that we will experience suffering. Jesus said, you will have trouble, but take courage, for I have overcome the world. But yet this year, we took our eyes off of him, and we dabbling in all this other stuff. Believers. Believers. Because Jesus wasn't doing enough for you. He didn't ease the suffering. And so you turn to all the things, all these other things because he wasn't working quick enough. I believe James said, let patience have its perfect work. Eyes, eyes, eyes. You got to make sure that you can see. You got to make sure that your eyes are open to the scriptures. You got to make sure it's the Holy Spirit that illuminates his word. You got to make sure that you can see before you lead somebody else. This is what you also need. You need direction. Let's say Princeton, Princeton is Saul. He wants to go to Damascus. He's blind. He tells Otisia, Otisia, I need to get to Damascus. If Otisia does not know how to get to Damascus, they both short. Because <laughs> Princeton can't see, and Otisia doesn't know the direction to go. So there's no way they can get there. I mean, unless somebody pops up with a map. There's no GPS back in the day. So those men who were journeying with Saul had to know how to get to Damascus. They had to know. 1 Corinthians 11. This is the modern English version. Follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Simple. Jesus, wherever you go, I'm going. Jesus, you go this way, I go this way. Jesus, you go right here, I'll go right here. Follow me as I follow Christ. This is what Paul was telling the Corinthian church. Follow me as your leader. Make sure your leaders are following Jesus Christ. Make sure your leaders are staying in the word. Make sure your leaders are studying the word. Make sure your leaders know the scriptures. Follow them as they follow Christ. Not themselves, not lustful passions, not youthful passions. Follow them as they're following Jesus Christ. And if they're following Jesus Christ, they'll be willing to die. Peter said, Jesus, we're going to follow you to death. And Jesus was like, you don't really mean that. But to follow Jesus means to die. So if your leaders, if the people in charge of you are not willing to die, I would submit that they're possibly not following Jesus all the way. Because he followed and he obeyed to the point of death on a cross. Follow me as I follow Christ. I got to make sure that direction is sound. Here's, here's what else you need. Compassion. Compassion. The reason why we're all still sitting here today is because God had compassion on all of us. This tells a parable of a, of a man who was beaten and left for dead. Two people walked past him and said, oh, wow, that's unfortunate. And they kept walking. But there was a Samaritan. The Bible says that when he saw the man that was beaten up, he had compassion. And what did he do? He went and bandaged his wounds. Compassion compels you to take action. It's not enough just to have pity. These are people out here walking blind. They don't know the truth. They don't know this God of this gospel. They don't know where they're going. If you have compassion for them, if, they, if you let them, if they let you lead them, lead them. Share with them the gospel. Lead them into the truth because they cannot see. Your compassion should compel you to move, to take action. Think back to when you were spiritually blind. 
Think back to those people who helped you. Think back to those people who led you to Christ while you could not see until the light penetrated your heart. Think about those people and understand that you need to do the same because they cannot see. Now, we get in the age, say to God, we need to get this together because we're showing compassion to the point where we're not calling out what sin is. Massaging it. Oh, just go ahead and do you. Live your truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, if my truth does not align with the truth of Jesus, who is the word of God, then it's a lie. Yeah, yeah. I can't be all that I'm supposed to be. I can't be my true self if I'm not living according to who God has called me to be because he created me. So to live outside of that is a deception to me. I'm cheating myself, not living who God called me to be. He was the creator. He created me. I didn't create myself. He created me. So don't let your compassion keep you from calling out what it is. Do it in grace and in love, but don't let it stop you from calling it out. Because true compassion says, I care about you enough to know that you're in darkness, you're doing all these things, you're acting a fool, and I need to show you the way. I need you to correct you in grace and truth and love. He whom he loves, he also disciplines, chastises, corrects. He loves. And this is the last thing you need. Long-suffering. Now, we don't like this word. I don't like this word. <laughs> I mean, it's a double whammy. Long-suffering. <laughs> I mean, you can't even get around that long-suffering. You know what has helped me? Anytime that God has called me to come along somebody and disciple them and work with them, as long and as frustrating as it was, I constantly think about how God is guiding me along day to day. And that enough humbles me to the point to keep going. Because I have not arrived. Paul said that. He said, I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> I press on. I press on because I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> I haven't gotten there yet. And so when you're guiding along those who are spiritually blind, those who uh, have not yet to discern the scriptures, who are still learning, there's an indefinite time limit. You're not the one that converts them, but you're the one that can facilitate them in that process. But it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a while. But if you committed to leading them by the hand, you need to suffer with them. Because that's what Jesus does for you. That's what he did on the cross. That's what he does now. And that's what he will always continue to do. That's what you need to do. Sight and direction, they go hand in hand. Compassion and long-suffering, they go hand in hand. The woman that was caught in the issue of adultery, they brought her to her. They said, Jesus, she was caught in adultery. What are we going to do? He started scribbling in the hands. And they was like, what you going to do, Jesus? He said, those, and yes, this don't y'all love this verse? He who was without sin, let him cast the first stone. And yes, that was to address their self-righteousness. But you know what happened after that? A couple verses later, he said, woman, where are your accusers? Who condemns you? She said, I don't know where they're at. He says, this was compassion. I don't condemn you. This was correction. Go and sin no more. And then he said, I am the light of the world. Those who walk in me shall not walk in darkness. That's what Jesus said. This account is awesome.
Because this is the premier account where we see the Apostle Paul become who he, later, who he becomes to be in the later epistles. But give credit to these men. When their follower was incapacitated and he could not see, and he had a journey, still a couple miles left in the journey, they took him by the hand and walked with him until he got to Damascus to where Ananias laid his hands on him to the point where the scales fell from his eyes so that he could see, not just physically see, but spiritually see. And that led into a whole nother shift. That led into a whole nother thing where we see him going around evangelizing, teaching, and preaching. But he had people. He had people to get him there. To personally ensure that he got to Damascus. When he could not see, they took him by the hand and made sure that he got there. This is what the Father is calling us to do, saints of God. We talk about being the hands and feet. Take your hand. Take somebody's hand and walk them. <laughs> as long as it gets, as tiring as it gets, as suffering as it gets, God, they don't understand your scriptures. God, they don't understand this. And God's telling you, well, you didn't understand this when you first got saved. You didn't understand how to walk like this when you first got saved. You wasn't all that when you first got saved. So the same compassion and long suffering I showed you and I'm still showing you, you show that to them. You do that to them. The same love I have for you, you ain't big or bad. I know some of y'all, y'all came out the womb thinking that you would say, but the same love I have for them while they're in their state of blindness is the same love I have for you. This is what being the hands and feet, this is one of the many components of being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to the Get Transformed podcast. We hope that you subscribe so that you can continue to be empowered by the latest podcast. For more information on Transformation Christian Fellowship, visit our website at transformationchristianfellowship.org or download our free mobile app on the App Store or Google Play Store. If you would like to support this ministry, simply text TCF1 to 77977. We thank you for your generosity and for listening to the Get Transformed podcast. And remember, transformation starts here.